7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast, 2 p.m. in London Town, it's 7.30 in Mumbai, India, 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan, and in Malaysia, it's 1964. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Hey, welcome in, everybody. Happy Saturday, Saturday night, and I ain't got nobody. <sighs> oh, yeah. It's uh, it's another hot one here in Malaysia. Another one. 365 days of another hot one. But, you know, it has hot and then hot. And it's kind of hot at the moment. We had no rain today. Fair weather clouds, blue sky, beautiful, gorgeous day. But uh, the rain helps cooling things off, and we didn't have that today. So we we missed it. And we missed you. It's been, you know, it always seems... Between Saturday and Monday, and then Monday and Wednesday, it seems like no time goes by at all. But for some reason, from our Wednesday stream to our Saturday stream, always feels like forever. <clears throat> but anyway, schedule's working out, so good for you uh, and good for us. Welcome to you across Facebook, Twitch.tv, YouTube Live, and rumble.com we are live once again on rumble.com please subscribe over there if you can check us out live or you can see all of our past shows there on rumble.com slash jsheldon just search for either <clears throat> jsheldon or i'm not wearing pants and it'll come up hang on coffee break mm. and by the way this is our Miko merchandise, it, one of the items. It's got uh, our logo. It's got our Miko on it. In fact, if you want to take a look, this is from twitch.tv. This is our Miko merchandise page. And we've got, there's the mug that I'm holding in my hand right there. We got uh, sweatshirts, cool t-shirts. We got mouse pads. I got one of those right here. Uh, stickers, very cheap little sticks, uh, stickers. And uh, This is Miko. And this is our logo. And uh, let's see, we got uh, Spiral Notebook. We got Singlets. We got Miko Cap. And Miko insisted that if I'm going to use her for merchandising, I had to give her her own cap. So this one here, hold on, let me scroll down so you can see it. There we go. This is a cap with only Miko on it. She's such a diva. So yeah, you can check all that out on our About page on twitch.tv if you'd like to pick up some stuff. Not too badly priced. It's okay. All right. Speaking of Miko. Miko update. Me, 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 me. Miko update. Miko's doing great. Uh, not much of an update. We had a big day today. She is completely zonked out on the bed laying in the air conditioning right now. But uh, we went this morning to the uh, city park at near Wanutama here in Malaysia. And um, she had a great time, made some new friends, had a, a hell of a time at the uh, off-leash part of the uh, city park there. And uh, did great and had a big, long walk. And then tonight, another big, long walk. So she, her health is back. She's eating me out of house and home. She eats 
twice as much as she ever used to. So she's gaining the weight back that she lost after her uh, her little stay in the hospital. But she's doing well. And uh, as you know, in our last stream, she actually showed up here. So nice to have her back after so long. All right, let's, uh, let me see. We'll dump the uh, merchandise page here. And uh, we got mostly good stuff tonight. Mostly nice, you know, the kind of stuff that I share with you guys. It's, it's I usually start off with something mildly controversial or something that kind of ticks me off. But then we very quickly go into the stuff that kind of warms my heart and hopefully warms yours too. Um, I want to, I saw this, it's it's true. I researched this and it actually is true. Um, as you know, uh, we have been living with this ridiculous mask mandates uh, for what, two years now almost? Um, this rather interesting little piece of uh, information that uh, I wanted to share with you and uh, the attached photograph. Again, if you're listening on the podcast, and yes, the audio part of our show is a podcast across all the places you listen to your podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you search I'm Not Wearing Pants. Look for our logo over there. And uh, and that's us. Just give us a subscribe and a download. Thank you. It's free. Um, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Apple Podcasts. We're on all, all the platforms. Um, anyway... 2,300 years ago, long before Islam, Arabs discovered that forcing people to cover their nose and mouths broke their will and individuality, depersonalized them, made them submissive. That's why they later imposed on a woman the mandatory use of fabric over her face. Now, this was before Islam. This existed. Uh, Islam then, of course, turned it into a woman's symbol of submission to Allah, uh, the man owner of the harem and also the king. Modern psychology explains that without a face, we cease to exist as independent beings. Face coverings and masks, ancient tools used to break down people psychologically. The beginning of deleting individuality. He who does not know this history is certainly condemned to repeat it. If you take, never mind Google, because Google is the biggest farce on the planet. Well, one of the biggest farces on the planet. Uh, I use DuckDuckGo or Bing, and if you put in face masks don't work, or scientific evidence that face masks work, face masks don't work, you will find a little bit of everything. Here's just a small sample of exactly that. Uh, do face masks work? Here's what the scientific evidence says. Uh, overwhelmingly suggests wearing a mask reduces transmission. Okay? Misinformation. Not healthy for students to be sitting there, six-year-old kids in kindergarten covering their face in masks. A careful review of the evidence. All this to say, and so comprehensively documented in a recent American Institute of Economic Research publication, no clear evidence that masks, surgical or cloth, work to mitigate risk to the wearer or to those who come in contact with the wearer. Uh, the best studies suggest they don't work. 
an evidence review of face masks against... Uh, they do, they don't. Still confused about masks. Here's the science. Do masks actually work? The best studies suggest they don't. 49 scientific studies uh, by mask opponents. The masks don't work because they can still let quite a bit of respiratory matter through. So it goes on and on and on and on. The search results say no, 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 yes, yes, no, 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 yes, no, yes. You pick whatever you want to plant your butt and, and decide. But uh, I wear masks. They're required here in a lot of businesses, in most businesses. Uh, if you don't have a mask on, uh, you can get some sort of a fine. And there's all kind, and it's still going on, even though most of the evidence, in fact, there's virtually no scientific scientific evidence, not hearsay, not rumor, scientific evidence. Okay, so I wanted to share this with you. The next time you slap that mask on your face, remember this. There's some audio here. I'm not going to bother because it's not really important. Here's a mask producing factory. I don't know where this is from, but keep this in mind the next time you slap that uh, face diaper on. Mm. Very nice, huh? Very healthy. Brilliant. If you are listening to the podcast, you really need to check out, go up to about 10 minutes in on the uh, on the video on rumble.com or YouTube or Facebook and uh, take a look at this <clears throat> very appetizing video of a bunch of guys in some sleazy, disgusting, dirty back room somewhere making face masks. That should put you off. Uh, yeah, then package them up, sell them at the 7-Eleven and Slap one on your face. Very nice. That's encouraging. Okay, what else we got? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I, I just, I wanted to share that with you uh, because this ridiculousness goes on. And uh, in the U.S., Biden's insane mask mandate and uh, vaccine mandate is, the fight continues. Hold the ground, patriots, and let's go, Brandon. Can I say that, or will I get booted off? Yeah, whatever, boot me off, I don't care. Uh, what do we got? All right, on and up and over into some good news. We got good news. Oh, we got good news. This one I'm actually going to try and share the sound with because it's worth it. No straight roads. Encore edition. And uh, there is an Encore edition. It launched when? It launched uh, October 20th. And we've got the trailer for you, but you got to hang on a second because I got to turn on the speaker here and my voice is going to get doubled. So, so just bear, bear with, with it for a, a second. second. Check, Check this out. I'm so going to get a copyright strike. It's worth it.
Just had to play a little bit of that for you tonight, because it's just that cool. Uh, that's the Encore edition. And uh, where's Metronomic? Here we go. Um, I want to I wanna share this also with you. Let me... Here we go. Uh, they announced, just like today, I think, last night or today, uh, Metronomic is the gang that produced and came out with the game, created the game, uh, No Straight Roads. And they have announced the game of their the name of their second game, Onde Onde, which is a type of a, a, how do I describe it if you don't live in Malaysia? Like a pastry, like a like a, a treat, a sweet treat. Um, it's a, an all new game currently in production for the next gen platform, uh, named after a Malaysian a Malaysian dessert. A dessert is a good way of describing it, I guess. Na uh, the same name, Onde Onde provides players with a charming story that inter intertwines beautifully captivating amounts of exploration, art, and Malaysian culture, which is very cool because if you don't live in Malaysia, this will give you a chance to experience some of what we have here culturally in Malaysia, which is so cool that we get to share that with the rest of the world. Um, I am, I believe, a part of this new project. We'll tell you more about that coming up. And uh, it will be an audio-centric game, similar to No Straight Roads, but in a totally different manner. And if you hang on just one second, I will try and play this trailer. This is a public post, so I'm not giving, any way, giving away any trade secrets. Hang on, let me turn, turn the, the sound, sound on, and now my voice gets weird. But here is the uh, the first debut teaser for Metronomics No New On Day On Day. Look at this. A little sneak peek at the world of Onde Onde. That is so cool. Wow. Ah, I'm excited. It's, uh, I believe it's in pre-production right now. <clears throat> and it will head on into production uh, soon. So, something more to look forward to, to all you No Straight Roads fans out there. And I know, especially on Twitch.tv, a lot of my fans and subscribers I found through No Straight Roads. I play the character, if you didn't know, of Cliff in No Straight Roads, that game. You can find that on Steam, by the way, among other platforms, I think. I'm not a big gamer, so... All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, these, by the way, the links to these are in our show notes tonight, so you can check them out if you want to click directly and see all that stuff. Um, I found this on Chili Sauce, chilisauce.my. That's C-I-L-I-S-O-S dot my. Uh, the good folks over at Chili Sauce do some rather 
interesting work. And, uh, you know, when I read this, I thought, is this the society that we really want to live in? Is this where we really want to go? The article is, and again, the link is in the show notes. Just I encourage you to go over and read the whole thing. Five common things that Malaysian men do that unintentionally make women feel uncomfortable. 9 p.m., you wait for the lift to arrive. A guy walks in and stands next to you. You step into the lift and he gets in behind you, waiting for you to press your floor before he does the same. Now, if that seems like a perfectly normal situation to you, chances are you're a guy. But for women, that could have been a terrifying experience. And even though the man in question might not necessarily have had any bad intentions, sometimes men do things to make women feel, that make women feel uncomfortable. Not to make them feel, but they, they just simply do. And oftentimes without knowing it. For example, if you get into the lift and you're being polite, you're letting her, a woman or a man, whoever it might be, you're allowing that person to hit their floor and use the keyboard, the keypad, before you punch in your floor. It's a polite thing. But people are so paranoid these days, they think, you know, it's some stalker or something, um, waiting to push the lift <clears throat> in the buttons last. Okay, fine. It, this one... I'm sorry, but I completely disagree with this. And if, if you feel uncomfortable in this situation, frankly, you've got a problem, not me. I always hold the door for people, men or women, elderly or young. I always hold the door for people. Or if, I, if we're both outside, we're both going in at the same time, I will open the door and gesture for someone to go in before me. But this article says, entering, uh, letting a lady enter first and walking in behind her. Oh my God, are we that freaking paranoid? Seriously? We've all seen it in movies or read it in books on manners. A man going out of his way to open a door for a woman and saying the magic words, ladies first. Yes, that's what you do. It's called uh, respect. I hate that we have to live in a culture where women are so afraid that my opening and holding a door for you makes you psychotic. Come on, really? This says in 1970s, John Travolta might have been able to charm the leading ladies into a date. Men these days may not share the same luck. With enough incidents of women being grabbed from behind occurring in the worst and most unlikely places, lifts, trains, and even walking through a park, ladies can't help but feel wary of men standing or walking behind us. Who the hell wrote this crap? Seriously, chili sauce. You know, you need to, who is this? Ivory Ann. Well, Ivory Ann, you need to get a little unpsychotic, okay? Paranoid much? Seriously, check out the link in our show notes. I'm, I'm walking a little too close for comfort. Uh, it goes on and on here. Staring longer than expected. Randomly initiating conversation in an effort to be friendly. What? <clears throat> you know what? I, I, I'm just not going to bother with this crap anymore because frankly it is crap. 
I thought some of it had a point, but the more I read it, the more I realize this lady just needs to, you know, take a couple of Valium and chill out. This is insane. Hold the door for people, man or woman. Strike up random conversations to be friendly. Do the right thing, huh? You want to know about doing the right thing? Check this out. It's from uh, WHSV TV, uh, WHSV.com. The link's in the show notes. I, I, uh, man, I need to change the subject because this is really ticking me off. Halloween happened about a week ago. In fact, it was a week tomorrow. <clears throat> this is the coolest thing ever. Kids refill empty Halloween bowl while trick-or-treating. Now, there's a whole news report. I don't want to get any copyright issues here, so I'll play it, but I'm not going to play the sound. But uh, here's the kids with their Halloween candy, and these kids got all the candy they needed, and they're talking about how they went around to all the different houses trick-or-treating. And um, there's the mom... The mom's talking. And um, these guys showed up. Here you go. Here's the security camera footage. And they there was a sign here that says, you know, take one, leave the rest for everybody. But the bowl is empty. So because other kids would show up on the doorstep and not have any treats, uh, they reached into their own candy bags and restocked the bowl. This is just the coolest thing. These kids were raised right. Check this out. They reach in their bag, and look at this. Look at that. They're restocking. And the kid here is saying there could be other kids who come by who don't have any candy. So they just did the right thing. And one by one, they each add a little bit from their own stash. And there they are. There's the three heroes. Fantastic. A round of applause for these amazing guys. Brilliant. I love stories like this. Kids that were raised right, kids that do the right thing. That's fantastic. Congratulations. The link to that story, the full story, is you can watch the video too. It's in the show notes tonight from whsv.com. Wow. Fantastic. That is so cool. Amazing. All right, what else have we got going on? Oh, you know what a whatchamacallit is? It's a, a, a whatchamacallit. <laughs> mm. We old people use that word a lot. I said we old people like this guy. Whatchamacallit. I don't, is that part of the culture here in Malaysia? I don't know that I've ever heard a Malaysian say whatchamacallit. Hmm. When you can't think of a word for something. You know, it could be something simple like a screwdriver or or, or a whatever, whatchamacallit. You just make up that nonsense word. It's quite common. And it means, you know, a, a whatchamacallit. It's like this thing, it's a whatchamacallit. It's actually a headphone stand. But um, a whatchamacallit, I'm sure you've heard that word before. Well, I found this list. It's rather cool because not every language uses whatchamacallit. Look at this. A whatchamacallit in different languages. In English, sometimes it's also called a thingamajig. You know, that, that thingamajig. 
in Spanish? Chingadera. Chingadera in Spanish is the word. I don't know. I could be swearing in these languages. I don't speak them well enough to know. In Danish, it's called a himstergums. Himstergums. Get me one of those himstergums. <laughs> oh, Japanese. Uh, nani nani. You know, it's a, a nani nani. Yeah, you know, one of those nani nani things. Uh, that one I never heard of. In Turkish, uh, zamazingo. Now that sounds like a cool word. In Turkish, a whatchamacallit or a thingamajig is a zamazingo. German, dingsbums. Why do the German words always sound dirty? Uh, it's one of those dingsbums. <laughs> oh, I need the dingsbums. It sounds like something you'd need to take a medication for. I've got dingsbums. <laughs> oh man. <coughs> I'm sorry about I'm sorry, sir, but we the tests have come back. You've got dingsbums. <laughs> and lastly, in Dutch, it's called a hoppledepup. God love the Dutch. It's a hoppledepup. A thingamajig or a whatchamacallit in Dutch is a hoppledepup. Alright, so the next thing you wanna thingamajig. Now you know how to say it in some other languages, like dingsbum. Look, I promised you this show was going to be a collection of curated crap every week. And pretty much it is. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, my friend Hesri uh, posted this over on uh, Facebook a while ago, a few weeks ago. But I saved it and I never got the chance to get to it. wanted to share it with you because it's very cool and it has a nice twist at the end. Um, I'm going to hide the end so you can't see it. Judith Love Cohen helped create the abort guidance system which rescued the Apollo 13 astronauts. She went to work on the day she was in labor. She was pregnant, about to give birth. She actually went into labor, but she still went to work. She took a printout of a problem she was working on to the hospital to give birth. And her, she called her boss and said she had finished the problem. So while she's in the middle of pushing out this baby in labor, she's working on a problem with the abort guidance system, which eventually winds up saving the Apollo 13 astronauts. Here's the twist. Do you know who she gave birth to on that day? Jack Black. How about that? <laughs> Judith Love Cohen is Jack Black's mom. That's cool. Gotta love Jack Black. <laughs> what a great twist. I love that story. That is so cool. All right, speaking of cool, how about this brilliant school? Really brilliant school. Look at the way they help kids to understand how things work. This is printed on, now again, if you're listening to the podcast, sorry, 
Go to Rumble or YouTube or Facebook or Twitch.tv. Check out the video of our show. Preferably Rumble, I think, is the best bet for you. Rumble.com, Jay Sheldon. And look at this. All the degrees, 50 degrees, 40, 30, 20, 10, painted on a door to help kids understand degrees, fractions of degrees. This is brilliant. Here's uh, stairs with the multiplication table on them as you go up. You can learn your multipliers. <laughs> That's very cool. This is a school that really knows how to subtly get kids to learn. Latitude is horizontal. Longitude is vertical. And they've got that displayed here in front of the door to a classroom. Actually, that looks like inside the classroom. Here's more steps with more multiplication tables as you go up. Imagine kids stopping in the middle of the stairs, staring at those numbers while others on the back need to wait till they're finished before walking out. This person says it's not a brilliant idea. I think it's a very brilliant idea. And how about this? In the uh, bathrooms, this uh, I would assume is the girls' bathroom, if we still have those anymore, do we? Uh, in, in Over top of the mirrors, in front of the sinks, it's written, You are beautiful. <laughs> Very cool. And uh, again, this looks probably elementary school level, but they've got all the colors listed on the stairs going up, not all kinds of colored pencils. These are brilliant. And here's another degree one with the doors. That's very cool. Very, very cool. I love schools that do this. Look at this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Just subtle little ways to get kids to learn. Here's the alphabet. Man, kudos. I wish I knew where this school was. It doesn't say, but it is just the coolest idea ever. I love this. Um, now check it out. All right. Hey, uh, we talked about earlier, we talked about being polite and that silly chili sauce article. Hey, don't get me wrong. ChiliSauce.my is a very cool website. Go over there. They do some really cool stuff. It's just that that particular article I think was ridiculous. And I think the writer needs to take a chill pill. But anyway, uh, being polite, doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking. I'm a big advocate of that. Always have been. I've talked about it all the time on the show. And I found this. Uh, it's my grandmother always said. It is absolutely brilliant. And uh, thank you, uh, Victor, for posting this. It's, uh, it's brilliant. My grandmother always said, don't go where you're not invited. Don't talk about what you don't know. Don't interfere with things that are none of your business. Don't open the fridge in someone else's house. Boy, that's true. Don't call after 10 p.m. And these days, don't text after 10 p.m. either. Don't go see someone at lunchtime. Don't enter other people's bedrooms without permission. Those used to be the rules of good manners, and they still should be, because manners never go out of fashion. Keep that in mind, and you will get along in life just fine. 
Oh, my. Nice stuff, huh? All right, we've done 35 minutes of this crap, and we're going to keep going because it's time for our book. And if you'd give me just one quick second... And we will open up our book. We're almost at the end. This is the last chapter of The War of the Worlds, the original from H.G. Wells, way back in 1897, way over 100 plus, 120, 30 years ago. And um, we're almost done. So we are going to be needing to pick a new book to start probably after tonight, or maybe if, if this gets a bit long, we'll do one more stream with the epilogue. But then that's it. The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells is over. So go to the Gutenberg Project. That's where we get all these public domain books. They're free. They come in all kinds of formats, eBooks, HTML. You can read them online, uh, text files, Word docs. You can download them. Like I said, eBooks also. And uh, they're all for free. If you'd like to donate, gutenberg.org, you can. Please do, because it's a great, great website. We love the work that they do. The Gutenberg Project. But uh, that's where we get all these books from. So, with the holiday seasons coming, I'm thinking maybe we'll do something holiday. Uh, Christmas Carol, something like that. But we'll see. We'll see. I'll give you a few options. If you'd like to suggest, go to the Gutenberg Project. Look up. All the stuff they have there, they've got thousands of books, all the classics. They're all public domain, so I can read them legally. And uh, if you want to make a suggestion, just go to, uh, just send an email, nopants at jsheldon.com. Send an email along. We read all your emails. I always answer everybody's emails that we get. And uh, just please do send an email suggestion if you want. No pants at jsheldon.com, and uh, I will read it, and I'll get back to you, and we'll see. We'll see what you'd prefer, but I, I think I'm going to leaning towards something more holiday-oriented. All right. It's moving on, and it's chapter nine, which is the final chapter before the epilogue of H.G. Wells' The War of the World, and let's just pop in our little slideshow here. Here we go. All right. Chapter 9, called Wreckage. And now comes the strangest thing in my story. Yet perhaps it's not altogether strange. I remember clearly and coldly and vividly all that I did that day until the time that I stood weeping and praising God upon the summit of Primrose Hill. And then... I forgot. Of the next three days, I know nothing. I've learned since that so far from my being the first discoverer of the Martian overthrow, several such wanderers as myself had already discovered this on the previous night. One man, the first, had gone to St. Martin's Le Grand, and while I sheltered in the cabman's hut, had contrived to telegraph to Paris. Thence the joyful news had flashed all over the world. A thousand cities, chilled by ghastly apprehensions, suddenly flashed into frantic illuminations. They knew of it in Dublin, Edinburgh, Manchester, Birmingham, and 
at the, all at the time when I stood upon the verge of the pit, already men weeping with joy, as I've heard shouting and staying their work to shake hands and shout, were making up trains, even as near as crew, to descend upon London. The church bells had ceased a fortnight since suddenly caught the news, until all of England was bell-ringing. Men on cycles, lean-faced, unkempt, scorched along every country lane, shouting of unhoped deliverance. Shouting to gaunt, staring figures of despair. And for the food, across the channel, across the Irish Sea, across the Atlantic, corn, bread, and meat were tearing to our relief. All the shipping in the world seemed going Londonward in those days. But all of this, I have no memory. I drifted a demented man. I found myself in a house of kindly people who had found me on the third day wandering, weeping, and raving through the streets of St. John's Wood. They've told me since I was singing some insane doggerel about the last man alive, hurrah, the last man alive. Troubled as they were with their own affairs, these people whose names, much as I would like to express my gratitude to them, I may not even give here. Nevertheless, cumbered themselves with me, sheltered me, and protected me from myself. Apparently, they'd learned something of my story from me during the days of my lapse. Very gently, when my mind was assured again, did they break to me what they had learned of the fate of Leatherhead. Two days after I was imprisoned, it had been destroyed, with every soul in it, by a Martian. He'd swept it out of existence, as it seemed, without any provocation, as a boy might crush an anthill in the mere wantonness of power. I was a lonely man, and they were very kind to me. I was a lonely man, and a sad one, and they bore with me. I remained with them four days after my recovery. All that time I felt a vague, a growing craving to look once more on whatever remained of the little life that seemed so happy and bright in my past. It was a mere hopeless desire to feast upon my misery. They dissuaded me, they did all they could to divert me from this morbidity, but at last I could resist the impulse no longer, and promising faithfully to return to them, and parting, as I will confess, from these four-day friends with tears, I went out again into the streets that had been lately so dark and strange and empty. Already they were busy with returning people. In places even there were shops open, and I saw a drinking fountain with running water. I remember how mockingly bright the day seemed as I went back on my melancholy pilgrimage to the little house at Walking. How busy the streets and vivid the moving life about me. So many people were abroad everywhere, busied in a thousand activities that it seemed incredible that any great proportion of the population could have been slain. But then I noticed how yellow were the skins of the people I met, 
how shaggy the hair of the men, how large and bright their eyes, and that every other man still wore his dirty rags. Their faces seemed all with one of two expressions, a leaping exultation and energy, or a grim resolution. Save for the expressions of the faces, London seemed a city of tramps. The vestries were indiscriminately distributing bread sent by the French government. The ribs of the few horses showed dismally. Haggard special constables with white badges stood at corners of every street. I saw little of the mischief wrought by the Martians until I reached Wellington Street, and there I saw the red weed clambering over the buttresses of the Waterloo Bridge. At the corner of the bridge, too, I saw one of the common contrasts of that grotesque time, a sheet of paper flaunting against a thicket of red weed, transfixed by a stick that kept it in place. It was a placard of the first newspaper to resume publication, the Daily Mail. I bought a copy for a blackened shilling I found in my pocket, most of it was in blank, but the solitary compositor who did the thing that had amused himself by making a grotesque scheme of advertisement stereo on the back page. The matter he printed was emotional. The news organization had not as yet found its way back. I learned nothing fresh except that already in one week the examination of the Martian mechanisms had yielded astonishing results. Among other things, the article assured me that what I did not believe at the time, that the secret of flying was discovered. At Waterloo, I found the free trains that were taking people to their homes. The first rush was already over. There were few people on the train, and I was in no mood for casual conversation. I got a compartment to myself, and I sat with folded arms, looking grayly at the sunlit devastation that flowed past the windows. And just outside the terminus, this train jolted over temporary rails, and on either side of the railway, the houses were blackened ruins. To Clapman Junction, the face of London was grimy with powder of the black smoke. In spite of two days of thunderstorms and rain, and at Clapman Junction the line had been wrecked again. There were hundreds of out-of-work clerks and shopmen working side by side with the customary navies and were jolted over a hasty relaying. All down the line from there the aspect of the country was gaunt and unfamiliar. Wimbledon particularly had suffered. Walton, by virtue of its unburned pine woods, seemed the least hurt of any in the line. The wandle, the mole, every little stream was a heaped mass of red weed, in appearance between butcher's meat and pickled cabbage. The Surrey pine woods were too dry, however, for the festoons of the red climber. Beyond Wimbledon, within sight of the line, in certain nurseries were the heaped masses of earth about the sixth cylinder. A number of people standing around it, some sappers were busy in the midst of it. Over it flaunted a Union Jack, flapping cheerfully in the morning breeze. The nursery grounds were everywhere crimson with the weed. 
a wide expanse of livid color cut with purple shadows, very painful to the eye. One gaze went with infinite relief from the scorched grays and sullen reds of the foreground to the blue-green softness of the eastward hills. The line on the London side of walking station was still undergoing repair, so I descended by Byfleet Station, took the road to Maybury, past the place where I and the artillery man had talked to the hussars, and on by the spot where the Martian had appeared to me in the thunderstorm. Here, moved by curiosity, I turned aside to find, among a tangle of red fawns, the warped and broken dog-cart, with the whitened bones of the horse scattered and gnawed. For a time I stood regarding these vestiges. Then I returned through the pine wood, neck high with red weed here and there, to find the landlord of the spotted dog had already found burial, and so came home past the college arms, and man standing at an open cottage door greeted me by name as I passed. I looked at my house with a flash of hope that faded immediately. The door had been forced. It was unfast and opened slowly as I approached. It slammed again. The curtain of my study fluttered out of the open window from which I and the artilleryman had watched the dawn. No one had closed it since. The smashed bushes were just as I had left them nearly four weeks ago. I stumbled into the hall and the house felt empty. The stair carpet was ruffled and discolored where I had crouched, soaked to the skin from the thunderstorm the night of the catastrophe. Our muddy footsteps, I saw, still went up the stairs. I followed them to the study and found lying on my writing table still with the selenite paperweight upon it, the sheet of work I'd left on the afternoon of the opening of the cylinder. For a space I stood reading over my abandoned arguments. It was a paper on the probable development of moral ideas with the development of the civilizing process. And the last sentence was the opening of a prophecy. In about 200 years, I had written, we may expect... The sentence ended abruptly. I remembered my inability to fix my mind that morning scarcely a month gone by, and how I had broken off to get my daily chronicle from the newsboy. I remembered how I went down to the garden gate as he came along, and how I had listened to his odd story of men from Mars. I came down, went into the dining room, and there were the mutton and the bread, both far gone now in decay, and a beer bottle overturned, just as I and the artilleryman had left them. My home was desolate. I perceived the folly of the faint hope I had cherished so long. And then a strange thing occurred. It is no use, said a voice. The house is deserted. No one has been here these ten days. Do not stay here to torment yourself. No one escaped but you. I was startled. Had I spoken my thoughts out loud? I turned, and the French window was open behind me. I made a step to it and stood looking out. 
And there, amazed and afraid, even as I stood amazed and afraid, were my cousin and my wife, my wife white and tearless. She gave a faint cry. I came, she said. I knew, knew. She put her hand to her throat, swayed. I made a step forward and caught her in my arms. And that is the end. Coming up on our next stream, we will read through the epilogue, which is the tenth chapter of the second book, truly the ending in the wrap-up of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the epilogue. We will have that for you on our next stream. All right. Thank you, folks. Thanks for the subscriptions, the shares, the likes, the follows, the podcast downloads. Appreciate it very much. And uh, we will see you again on Monday night. Wow. It's been a great Saturday. Enjoy the rest of your weekend wherever you are on the planet. I will see you Monday night, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 